From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm Siri Belusu. I'm Amanda Icone. This week, we're talking about Opportunity Zones. So, so we have invested over $7.6 billion to date in low-income communities around the country. And we actually, uh, we actually looked back at that data to just sort of single out the portion of the portfolio that's been in actual Opportunity Zones. Um, and it's close to $6 billion of that. The 2017 tax law included an incentive for investors who move capital into qualified funds. In exchange, they get a tax break. But there's a catch. The investments need to be targeted in these government-designated opportunity zones, hence the name, and they have to be held for at least five years before investors would see any tax savings. Today, we're joined by Margaret Anadu, partner and head of the Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs. I want to jump right into the Opportunity Zone investments that Goldman Sachs has been making. Uh, The firm has been seemingly ahead of the curve. And uh, you guys actually launched your first funds in January following tax reform before any regulations or rules had come out regarding the tax law. So tell us, how did you guys manage that? Sure. We did, in fact, make our first Opportunity Zone investment in January 2018. When we learned about the Opportunity Zone Act and started to dig into the details, we realized that it was an incentive built with the exact same mission and goal of our business overall. So long before January 2018, you know, our business actually started back in 2001 with a very clear um, and ambitious mission of investing the firm's capital, not just to generate a financial return, but also to create a real impact in underserved communities. And so, you know, at its core, what the Opportunity Zone Act is uh, attempting to do is really get capital off the sidelines and drive that into low-income neighborhoods, which is exactly what we've been doing for 18 years. So how is Goldman Sachs tracking the impact of its investments in distressed communities? So in the Urban Investment Group, as we think about how to track the impact of our investments, some of it is really straightforward and some of it gets a lot more complicated. So as an example, if we invest in affordable housing development, one of the things we track very simply is the number of units of affordable housing we've created or preserved, and the affordability of those units. Those are very simple numbers. Then there are the other parts of our investments that we really care about tracking that are much more complicated. So for your existing real estate investments, how are you ensuring that you're not simply driving up prices in the neighborhood and possibly driving out communities that have already existed there for decades? One of the concerns that we've heard over and over again from community stakeholders and, and a concern, quite frankly, that we think is is severe and we've been thinking about a lot is that we don't simply displace the residents that have been there you know, for decades and lived in these communities and just simply make both the housing and the cost of goods and services so expensive that they can no longer afford them. It is a very complex issue, and I do not think that there is sort of a you know silver bullet solution, but a few of the things we focused on, one is just mixed income housing. So we, you know, in as many of our developments as possible, make sure that there is at least, you know, all of the units in some cases, or at least some portion of them are set aside and set at levels that are affordable to the members of that community. The other thing that we do uh, in, in every project is work with local key you know, stakeholders, the public sector together to really envision what what is the housing that we're looking for in this community. And basically just not coming in as a you know capital provider or real estate operator that doesn't work very closely hand in hand with the community to really design these projects and make sure that they are going to be beneficial for those neighborhoods. 
I will also say, though, you know, some of this, unfortunately, is simple supply and demand. There, there are not many examples of neighborhoods that become more amenitized, better schools, better retail, more services that don't become more expensive because as things, right, you know, neighborhoods are no different, become more desirable, they do become more expensive. And that's why I think it's really important for the private sector and public sector to work together, right? So cities and states, they have a very, very, very important role to play here. They control land use. They control tax incentives. They they can marry so many other incentives and benefits with federal opportunity zones to make sure that they're incentivizing the type of development they want to see. So, you know, if if affordability, for example, is a real problem, there's nothing from stopping, you know, a city or the local economic development office or the housing office at the state to say, look, we want to see a certain percentage of affordable housing and everything that gets built or, you know, we want to institute rent stabilization. So all of these things are possible, but unfortunately, it's not something that any private sector investor can do on their own. Another area of focused criticism around the Opportunity Zones tax break has been centered around large investment firms like Goldman Sachs making moves early on. There's a lot of skepticism that this tax break sort of, quote unquote, meant for the poor is actually benefiting the rich. So when Goldman Sachs is moving these amounts of capital around, is it, you know, is it fair for people to be making value judgments and is it fair for them to be skeptical? I actually think a lot of the skepticism is 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 healthy and, and warranted. We should all be skeptical anytime that public funds are used. And we should we should think about what is the goal of the incentive, how are the dollars going to be utilized, and are we going to get the outcomes that we're seeking? So if we think about the point of Opportunity Zones, right, we are looking to get capital off the sidelines and invested in low-income neighborhoods that have been starved for capital. Those are really, really, really important goals. So am I focused on, you know, who exactly is getting the tax benefit and should banks benefit or should investment fund managers benefit? Again, I think that's a healthy discussion, but what I'm most focused on is what are those investments going to look like? When this is all said and done and we look at what's been invested and where it's been invested, have we actually accomplished anything for the people in those neighborhoods? Do they have better housing? Is there better healthcare facilities? Do they have better educational attainment? You know, uh, people can be, you know, skeptical about why Goldman is doing that or not. That's fine. But at the end of the day, I think we're going to continue with what we've been doing for two decades and really demonstrating that you can invest capital, you can make a return on it, and you can do that while making sure there is a clear benefit in the neighborhoods where you invest. One thing that we've seen in the news, and I myself have written into my articles, is calling it an Opportunity Zones tax break. And you've been calling it an incentive. So why why the difference in language here? Uh, it's funny you've noticed that. So, you know, I, I think that, look, I, I think both terms are, you know, technically correct. But when someone says tax break, I feel like it connotes a sort of passivity, like you're just going to sit there and do nothing and get a tax break. The reason why I call it a tax incentive is because you you have to you have to do something. It is incentivizing a certain type of behavior. So one thing that everyone should remember is you only pay a capital gains tax to begin with if there is a gain. So if there's no gain, then there's no tax anyway, which means, you know, you didn't you didn't get a benefit. And so break incentive, I think people should call it whatever they want. I think it's just most important to understand that these are investments that need to be made with real underwriting, with real risk, and at the end of the day, if those investments don't work, um, then there's not much of an incentive to be had or break. 
So tell us a little bit about your childhood in Lagos and how old were you when you when you moved to Houston? So I was about nine uh, when I moved to Houston. And in Lagos, certainly there was, you know, very stark inequality, you know, not a very significant middle class, you know, very little of one at all when I lived there. But there just wasn't the same um, tension around race, right? We were just mostly black. And, you know, that was um, very, very different experience than than the experience of being a black American in Texas. So it's really interesting that you're bringing an international perspective to Goldman Sachs. I myself spent six years as an adult living in India. And when I returned to the States, I found myself drawing parallels. So can you share a little bit more about some of those parallels that you see with development and infrastructure problems that you saw growing up in Lagos and perhaps what you're trying to fix and address with your impact investing through Goldman Sachs? My international experience is is interesting in terms of its its impact on my work today. So, you know, I did not live in uh, Lagos as, as as an adult, as you mentioned. I was I was a lot younger, but even then, I, I was very aware that there were groups of people who had a lot, and groups of people who almost literally had nothing. Being able to to have some role in bridging that gap between folks who just have not had a set of opportunities to have, to achieve, uh, to learn, to be comfortable. You know, I knew that that was something that I wanted to do, wanted to to be a part of. You know, I do feel a significant amount of privilege to be in a place where we are having, you know, discussions about what these public-private partnerships should look like and how these incentives should be structured and who is getting the benefits. That, that it's a, you know, pretty robust conversation at all um, I think is I think is different from from many places around the world where there's not there's not even enough trust in government or trust in these types of partnerships, you know, to to be to be successful. Um, and so, you know, I think at the end of the day, seeing poverty at a very 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 young age uh, sticks with you, um, and it certainly has with me. So since the uh, 2017 tax law was passed and everyone kind of slowly caught on to the Opportunity Zones tax break, there's been a few different zones that have caught a little bit more attention than others. New York City, Miami, south side of Chicago, uh, Oakland, um, certainly. Um, Are you seeing that there's a lot more competition now for investments in those areas? Or do you think that it's a little bit more spread out than, than what we're seeing in the major headlines? Yeah, so it's it's been it's been very interesting to sort of watch the conversation around uh, different regions. So there, I think, has been a lot of attention on what I would call the more developed of the opportunity zone. So, for example, you know, there's a, there's a pretty robust conversation going on about downtown Portland. In some of the more challenged um, neighborhoods and cities that we focus on. You know, unfortunately, there has not been a lot of discussion and there has not been as much um, attention and competition. I think that that is just one of the consequences of having an incentive that is not allocated. Right. So many of the federal community development and economic development incentives, they tend to be allocated by population. So Florida, you get this much and Idaho, you get this much. This was designed in that it is one unlimited. 
So, you know, it could be, uh, you know, as much capital gains as folks choose to invest. And there is no allocation of how much of that has to go into what zone. And I think a natural byproduct of that is that you'll see some zones get a lot of capital. And unfortunately, you'll see zones, um, you know, I would venture to say there will be some zones that don't get any capital. Thanks so much for joining us, Margaret. Thank you so much for having me. Now, here's a recap of the week's top news. President Donald Trump and the Trump Organization have asked a U.S. judge to block a congressional subpoena seeking business records from his longtime accounting firm, Mazars. France will briefly increase the tax deduction for small individual donations to raise funds for reconstructing the Notre Dame Cathedral. The break was included in a draft bill that the French Minister of Culture presented to the government's weekly cabinet meeting. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin has refused for the second time to release President Donald Trump's tax returns to House Democrats, arguing that the Democrats are concealing their true intent to expose the president's personal and business financial records to the public. For more on these stories, visit news.bloombergtax.com. That's it for this week's episode. I'm Amanda Icone. And I'm Siri Belusu. Thanks for listening.